Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to BFBS Stiprec, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. The race is on to replace Boris Johnson as Prime Minister, but who will take charge of the UK and how will they prioritise defence? I'd seen duty and service and sacrifice for something greater than ourselves. As Chancellor, I prioritised record funding for the armed services. This is not about petty politics. This is a battle of ideas that is actually going to determine the future of our country. Cutting taxes and spending more on defence have both been big themes in the early campaigning. But could the eventual winner deliver both? A former head of the army tells us what he wants from the next prime minister. The size of the army has got to be larger than it currently is. And then, of course, it's not just numbers. It's actually the quality of our equipment. Frankly, if the infantry on the battlefield can't keep up with the armour, then we're actually inviting some kind of disaster. The new Prime Minister will take charge of Britain's efforts to help Ukraine win its war with Russia. We'll hear from the city thought to be Moscow's next target. It's pretty deserted, as you'd expect, with any place that's about to become a war zone. It's already been getting shelled sporadically. We are a week into the race to become Britain's next Prime Minister. Whoever is picked by Conservative MPs and then party members will have the future of UK defence in their hands. But what will they do with it? Before we look forward, we should first take stock of where we are now. James Hurst assesses the defence legacy that Boris Johnson will leave behind. Some will remember Boris Johnson simply as the Prime Minister who made this promise. We will not be cutting our, our armed services in any form. We will be maintaining the size of our armed services. And then swiftly broke it by cutting 9,000 troops from the army. But at the very same time he did that, he also ended decades of cuts to the UK's defence spending and went into reverse, injecting billions of pounds of new money into defence. The biggest demand since the, uh, since the Cold War, £24 billion. The money was promised to build a new high-tech future for the forces, but to pay the bills also, some older ships, planes, tanks and armoured vehicles had to be retired. And not everyone thinks this is delivering the forces the UK needs. The Conservative MP, Tobias Elwood, who chairs the Commons Defence Committee, he recently told the Prime Minister that the money hasn't touched the sides. Instead, he said it's been swallowed up by spiralling costs to replace Britain's ageing nuclear deterrent, leaving hollowed-out conventional forces. We have stockpiles which are being depleted. We're short of deep-fire capabilities, uh, rocket artillery, air defence and indeed hypersonics as well. This is where the character of conflict is moving. We need to invest more, including in those tanks which we're cutting by a third. Now, while much of Mr Elwood's list relates to decisions taken in Boris Johnson's integrated review, those depleted stockpiles that he mentioned at the start, they are largely because of the weapons that the UK has been sending to Ukraine. And Boris Johnson's early decision to help arm the country have seen him pushed forward as a world leader on this, winning him many admirers including Ukraine's ambassador to the UK. I have to say that he was very popular. He knew the nation. He understand the gravity of the situation. He managed to accumulate only to get together with this effort and bring Ukraine what we needed at the time. Whoever succeeds Boris Johnson as Britain's Prime Minister will inherit that mission to support Ukraine and what is a significantly bolstered defence budget. They'll also inherit pressure from many in their party to spend even more on the forces. And then they will have to decide what to do with that inheritance.
James Hurst. Well, the first days of campaigning saw a defence spending bidding war among some of the hopefuls. But could a bigger budget for the forces actually be delivered among all the other promises like lower taxes? Ben Zaranko is an economist from the independent think tank, the Institute for Fiscal Studies. Before testing the future promises, I asked for his assessment of whether Boris Johnson's claims of boosting defence spending were fair and accurate. Well, it's certainly true that defence spending has been on a long and steady downwards trend as a share of what government does, as a share of the economy. And then, yes, what Boris Johnson's government did was announce a big chunk of money going into the defence budget. I think £24 billion adds up, as you say, over four years. More meaningful way to think about it might be that by the end of the parliament, you're planning to spend about £9 billion more each year on defence. And yes, that does mark a reversal of the trend of recent decades. And is that extra money secure or would Boris Johnson's successor be able to cut it back if they wanted to? Well, nothing's set in stone and particularly in the current environment of political turmoil, it's hard to say anything with certainty. What we can say is that the defence budget is now fixed until the end of this parliament, at least on paper. Under that you'll see the the, the day-to-day element of the defence budget, so that's for things like staff costs, cut back ever so slightly, partly because of reductions in headcount. At the same time, big injections of cash into the capital budgets or for investment in things like equipment um, and you know, new warships, whatever it happens to be. After that point, we don't know. If you had a government come in that was committed to substantial tax cuts, looking to you know reverse increases in national insurance, cancel planned increases in corporation tax, they might be looking around at ways to fund that and it's possible that the defence budget, along with other things, might be seen as one area that they could pare back in order to fund that. And what about the war in Ukraine? Is that eating into the extra billions given to defence, the cost of supplying expensive kit and weapons, or is that being paid for by the Treasury Reserve, like operations in Iraq and Afghanistan? Yeah, as you say, there's a long-standing agreement between the the Ministry of Defence and the Treasury that when there's exceptional costs, that's typically met outside the usual core budget, and that's been what's happened so far. I guess the difficult question is, what happens when this ceases to be seen as one-off costs and starts to just become the new normal, and perhaps, you know, we live in a riskier world, perhaps we need to have structurally permanently higher defence spending. That's when I think it starts to pose more challenges for a Chancellor looking to, you know, impose tax cuts or reduce the size of the state. So at what point do you think that that might start to bite? Well, I think if this drags on, I think if there is an assessment within the defence and security community that the world is a riskier place and we have to think about structurally spending more, so that might look like spending 2.5% of GDP on defence rather than 2%, then it becomes a more permanent decision and you have to think about how can we fund that on a medium-term ongoing basis. Uh, indeed, uh, Boris Johnson pledged shortly before his downfall that defence spending would increase to 2.5% of GDP by 2030. In the current economic climate, how hard would that be for his successor to achieve if they chose to stick to that and how much more spending power could it be for defence? An extra half percent of GDP, so going from 2% to 2.5%, you know, we're talking 10, 12 billion pounds per year. It's quite a lot of money, but it's affordable within the grand scheme of things. The reason why it's challenging is that would be a permanent increase in government spending. And while mm. you can borrow more in the short term to fund exceptional things like a war in Ukraine, if you want to permanently spend more in defence, you're going to have to think about permanently either raising more in taxes or spending less on other things. 
the challenge is that lots of other areas are you know, really struggling in the aftermath of the pandemic. Look at the NHS, for example, the social care sector, schools, grappling with rising energy bills, for instance. And you've got a set of potential prime ministers who all are saying they want to cut taxes, it seems to me. So it's really difficult to see how you square that circle. Something has to give. There are no easy options on the table. And if the Russian-Ukraine conflict means that we do have to spend permanently more on defence. It might be one way in which, as a nation, we sort of feel poorer if that's less money we have available to devote to other things. Ben Zaranko from the Institute for Fiscal Studies. Well, with me, as always, is Professor of Defence Studies Michael Clark. Michael, it, it seems clear Boris Johnson is leaving a legacy of a significantly increased defence budget. But is it a balanced budget? Is it enough to deliver what is promised, or does it still have one of those famous black holes? Well, it will have a, a black hole as it goes forward. The, the thing about the extra spending that was announced uh, two years ago now is that after so much hollowing out of the forces, you lose about half of that extra expenditure just in making good on the problems that you've built up. So, you know, although the Treasury keeps saying we put 24 billion into defence, Ben Wallace got a four-year settlement, that's all true. But effectively, you lose the first half of it, more or less. And that amount only goes through to the end of 2023. And so next year, they've got to decide on what they're going to spend on the next two, three, four years. And that's where the black hole will be clear, particularly in view of the fact that the Ukraine war is, is exposing, at least on paper, enormous holes in our own defence coverage and our ammunition stocks and so on. And um, Michael, defence spending has had a bit of traction in the first days of this leadership race. Could this race become a good thing for defence? It increases the visibility of defence as a, a more fundamental national choice. Well, I mean, we always know that it is, but it's never really phrased in that way. And in elections, it just gets half a day's coverage. But as we look at the um, candidates now, so uh, Penny Mordaunt and Tom Tugendhat are committed to defence. Um, Liz Truss may or may not be. Rishi Sunak is regarded as not especially committed to defence. At least it raises the fact that we, we are confronted with a, a set of national priorities. At a dangerous time, are we going to spend significantly more on defence or are we going to duck the challenge and live with the consequences? Well, let's hear now from General Lord Dannett, who was head of the army from 2006 until 2009. What does he want the next prime minister to change about the UK's armed forces? It's the depth and the strength of our own land forces is where I'm particularly focused. Currently, the government is intending to reduce by a better part of 10,000 size the British Army. Well, that decision must be reversed as a matter of priority and indeed consideration giving to growing the size of the army. It's all very well for us to make much of forward deployments in Estonia and Poland, but if we're going to sustain that over an extended period of time, these amount to operations of the sort of scale of Iraq and Afghanistan, not operations in which we are fighting. But if we're trying to keep several thousand troops forward deployed, we have to have enough depth in our military in order to be able to maintain the proper rotations. As we know, we aim when we are deployed for six months to have 24 months between deployments. Well, that means that you've got to have five units, if you like, going around every rotation. And that actually means that the size of the army has got to be larger than it currently is. And then, of course, it's not just numbers. It's actually the quality of our equipment. Um, yes, we're going to rework the Challenger main battle tanks, but only 148 Challenger 3s are anticipated. That is a woefully small number. The Warrior Tracked Infantry Fighting Vehicle 
is not going to be mm. reworked itself. It's going to be taken out of service and replaced by the wheeled boxer vehicle. Well, frankly, if the infantry on the battlefield can't keep up with the armour, then we're actually inviting some kind of disaster. Go beyond that, what the Russians have shown in Ukraine is the importance of, of artillery uh, and rocketry. Our own holdings of artillery and multi-barrel um, rocket launcher systems are themselves inadequate. So there are many areas where we need to be investing more in our army to make it capable mm. for these complicated days in this part of the 21st century. Boris Johnson has invested billions more into defence. Um, those changes that you're talking about, do they need more money or is it about the reprioritisation? You can do a certain amount with reprioritisation, but um, you can't get away from uh, needing to increase the quantum. And indeed, uh, Boris Johnson has said, but whether his successor will continue uh, with that statement, I don't know, that our defence budget will grow by the end of this decade from 2% of GDP to 2.5%. Well, that's an important statement. We've got to hold whoever becomes the next Prime Minister to make sure that that growth does happen. Because without it, we will not be able to get the quantitative and qualitative improvements that I've been arguing just now that I think are absolutely essential. Now, the Defence Secretary, uh, Ben Wallace, seems to have in indicated he wants to stay in post under the next Prime Minister. When he ruled himself out of the race for that top job, would you like to see him stay? Does change at the top unsettle defence? Well, I was talking to one of our Defence Ministers just a couple of days ago, Baroness Goldie, who speaks for Defence in the House of Lords, pointed out quite accurately that none of the Defence Ministers resigned during the spate of government resignations uh, over the last week or two, because they felt it was their duty to maintain the solidarity in defence, particularly as the UK is taking such a strong position over Ukraine. Well, I think that obviously came from the top. That was Ben Wallace's decision. I think that was an honourable thing for him to do. I think it was an honourable thing for the whole defence team of ministers to stay in their posts. Uh, and therefore, I would hope very much that whoever the next prime minister is, he or she, will keep this defence team in place because they're experienced, they know what they're doing, and they're good for defence, good for the country. Now, you led the army under Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. Just give us a bit of insight about how much of a direct relationship there is between service chiefs and whoever is prime minister. And I wonder if that depends significantly on the personalities involved. Yes, it does depend on personalities involved. But I think um, what we have to remember is the way the top end of defence has developed over recent years is that the position of the chief of defence staff uh, has become an extremely important one and routinely it's the chief of the defence staff that has dealings with it's of course the secretary of state for defence but also particularly with the prime minister and on occasions could be called into cabinet so the the influence the direct influence of the single service chiefs has been rather reduced and here i'm afraid i'm getting into my own experience that in the difficult days when I was chief of, chief of the general staff, when we were fighting campaigns in Iraq and Afghanistan, I could not get the Prime Minister Tony Blair or subsequently Gordon Brown, or indeed Des Brown, who was the Secretary of State for Defence, to fully understand that it was the army that was doing the heavy lifting, the fighting of the dying, and that we needed greater resources to be spent uh, on our, our, our own military. Um, and it was a frustration that I had that um, having to go through the Chief of Defence Staff, who in, uh, he and I have talked about it, I don't think fully understood the needs of our land forces. This was, this was a difficulty.
General Lord Dannett, uh, Michael Clark, you've dealt with many prime ministers over the years. Are they all equally hands-on with defence or indeed hands-off? They're all, they all differ and they all have different levels of, of interest. I mean, Tony Blair was not terribly interested in the minutiae of defence. He didn't know much about the military and he didn't really care to find out, even after a couple of years. But he did have a sense of strategic clarity, whether people liked it or not. He respected the military, wasn't especially interested in how they did what they did, but he did have a sense of how they might be used. And Gordon Brown was quite different. I mean, he Gordon Brown was a man for detail. And so he, he did know the detail of the military. And of course, he knew it from being chancellor for so long, running the treasury. And in a sense, he used his detail to keep uh, a distance from the military emotionally. He, he hated the idea that the military would charm him into uh, acquiescence to what they wanted. He was quite sceptical about the way the military, who do, do have the ability to charm politicians with their politeness and their competence and the sheer glamour of what they do, uh, he was very suspicious of that. And then uh, Boris Johnson. I mean, I was in a meeting talking about one particularly big, big defence issue, and he asked he didn't know anything about it whatsoever and he asked quite good questions but the questions were the sort of questions you'd get from a graduate uh, student not not anybody else and i you know i was as i was sitting across the table from him i looked at him and i thought you were foreign secretary for two years before this job did you not absorb any of it you know, did you didn't you didn't you take any of this stuff with you from foreign secretary but but he didn't um and he was a very curious character uh, and one other point um i was at the passing out parade um, of Sandhurst in the summer of 2010, just after David Cameron had become Prime Minister. Before he took the salute, he went to inspect the, the, the soldiers, so he left the podium and walked across the parade ground. The band suddenly, suddenly struck up the James Bond theme. You know, Monty, <laughs> you know, Monty Norman, of course, died this week, who, who composed the James Bond theme, but literally the band went into that famous riff and the whole crowd fell about laughing and he was starting to laugh. <laughs> Nobody could keep a straight face. As he walked towards the troops and walked up and down the lines, there was that James Bond theme thumping out from the military band in the corner. That was a moment to cherish. Fascinating insight. Thank you, Michael. And what are the chances of the new Prime Minister holding another defence review just a couple of years after the last one? Oh, I think the Ember did have a seizure if that was, if that was <laughs> said. But, I, but there will be a form of review because of the Ukraine war. If you remember, um, after the 1998 review, we had 9-11 in 2001, just, you know, the, the, within a couple of years, everything seemed to have changed. They didn't, they didn't conduct a new review, but they produced what they called a new chapter. And I suspect mm. that that's what we'll get this time. We'll get a sort of new chapter, lessons learned from the Ukraine war. But as new chapters go, I think it will cast a lot of doubt on all the things that were stated, a lot of things that were stated in the integrated review and reprioritize some of the things that were said there. This is Zitrap. Now, we mentioned the next Prime Minister will have to take on the UK's mission to support Ukraine in its fight back against Russia's invasion. The war is now in its fifth month, and while it's not quite a stalemate, Russia continues to make only slow progress in its mission to capture the Donbass region. Having taken Severodonetsk, Lysychansk, and next on Russia's target list appears to be the small city of Slovyansk. Daily Telegraph foreign correspondent Colin Freeman spoke to us after visiting the city on Tuesday. Day. If you wander around the streets of Slavyansk, it's pretty deserted, as you'd expect with any place that's a, about to become a war zone. It's already been getting shelled sporadically. There are nonetheless quite a lot of people still living there, mainly elderly people. 
Then there's also often a younger relative who's looking after them. There are other people who are too poor to leave. For the majority of the time, people simply hunkering down, spending time in their flats, and also quite a lot of them in basements and other shelters at night where they know they can be safe from the bombs. We do see a lot of soldiers around, movements of artillery, tanks, and all sorts of other things. They are gearing up for war. You can hear the sounds of artillery coming and going from somewhere in the distance around Slavyansk, the Russian front lines, depending on where exactly you are, um, anything from about um, 10 kilometers away to 15 kilometers or so. So it, it's, all, it's, it's all within earshot. We have actually been staying in a hotel in a place called Drushivka, which is a bit further south and west, partly for safety reasons. Uh, last Saturday, we were woken very rudely by five missiles landing only about a mile away or so from our hotel. One of them hit a supermarket. One of them hit a cultural center that was being used for food aid. These were big missiles, not just mortar shells or ordinary artillery. They carved 10-foot deep holes in the concrete around these targets. And um, yeah, it, it, what it shows is that anywhere within this area is within the, the range of the Russian firepower. Colin Freeman with the view from Slovyansk. Uh, Michael Clark, let's broaden out and look at the map as a whole. What does it tell us today about the balance of power in this war? This Russian offensive is grinding on in the Donbass. So south of Slovyansk is Kramatorsk, which is the more important city because that's a transport hub. And if Slovyansk and Kramatorsk fall, then uh, the whole of the Donbass is basically in Russian hands. But I don't think they'll fall very quickly. For now, the war is, has reached Seversk and Bakhmut, which are sort of waypoints on the, on the road to Slovyansk Kramatorsk. But ev- as, as uh, Colin said, most places are now within artillery range. And so bombardments have started, but not, not this ground push because the Russians are, are still repositioning themselves and they, they, they're taking a pause because they just don't have the ability to, con- to complete the momentum to keep on going. Meanwhile, the Ukrainians are launching a, a, a counterattack, quite a big counterattack in the southwest around Kershyn. They think that they can liberate Kershyn, which would be a big strategic prize if they do. I shouldn't underestimate the job that they've got in trying to do that. And they need and- to show the Ukrainians, they need to show the West that they can retake territory. That's very important to them politically, to show they can retake territory. And Ukraine's defence minister this week talked about gathering a million strong army armed with NATO weapons. Is it risky, though, to open up the uh, the new battlefront they intend to in the south? Well, it may be, but the Ukrainians have got to show that they're not just losing slowly, which is what they're doing in the Donbass. They've got to show that there's some hope that they can put themselves in a good position for some sort of negotiations next year where they get some or all of their territory back. And so what's happening in the southwest around Kirshen is really important to the image that the Western world has of this Ukrainian war effort. So in a way, they've got to take the risk because if they just continue to lose slowly and gallantly, the, the world will applaud them but won't give them enough help. Well, let's get another view from Ukraine. Marta Shokalo is editor of the BBC's Ukrainian service. She was relocated to Poland early in the war and has just returned to visit Kyiv for the first time since then. Oh, I must say it's very emotional. It's a mixture of joy and big sadness for me. Joy because, well, you are back home, you see your friends you haven't seen for four months now. 
sadness because it look everything looks in a way normal, but it's not normal. Like yesterday, for example, we, uh, me and my son, woke up at four because of the air raid siren, and this sound was so horrible for us because we didn't get used to it. Like people who live here, because people who live here they say, "Oh, we just we don't care, we don't pay attention anymore to this." That made me sad because they just get used to this state of war and they see it as something normal, but it's not normal. It was interesting yesterday. We were standing and chatting with our friends outside, and there were thunderstorm. We heard this loud uh, noise of thunder, and like everyone who was standing there, like almost jumped and said, "Oh, but don't worry, Marta. It's not what you think. It's it's just the thunder." So all these small things sometimes really shocking. And what's your assessment overall of where the balance of the war is now? Well, uh, it definitely looks like war now is in. Uh, we are entering like more quiet phase in Kiev. But if we are talking about the actions uh, in the eastern Ukraine and south of Ukraine, uh, this war is there. Ukrainian army is now preparing for the big fight for the southern city of Kherson and the whole southern Ukraine, which is crucial for Ukraine as a one of the main agricultural regions and uh, second as a main gate to the main ports seaports i think that would be happening probably in august and now when ukraine have more has more um, military equipment from from the west it could be a, a next hot phase of this war i think and on that military equipment, those weapons from the West, what impact are they having on the conflict? They are having. And now, in I would say, last two weeks, we've seen 20 big major attacks on main Russian supply headquarters. That's quite significant. It looks like the main effect is in actually the Western uh, military equipment. As soon as Ukrainians start getting it, uh, it now you can see it in, in action. Russia's strategic priority is to seize the Donbass region. How far is it from achieving that? Well, it, the situation in, Don, in Donbass right now is not very good for Ukraine, I must say, because Russia managed to gain the control over most of Donbass, the main um, cities. But I wouldn't say so that Russia's main goal is to seize Donbass. No, I think the main Russian goal is to seize the Donbass and to keep the southern Ukraine. I think southern Ukraine is not the less crucial for Russia as the Donbass. And without southern Ukraine, Ukraine, it really, it becomes very small, insignificant country. And is there any talk there of negotiating and an end to the war? No. I think we don't see any signs of any kind of talks uh, on any kind of level. And I must say the Ukrainian society is not ready for that yet at all. Although Ukraine losses are, are very big. Many, many people, uh, many young men and you can feel that even on the personal level, like talking to your friends, people you know, there are so, so many men around who 
just died and so this is a very draining conflict and it looks like it will last for uh, longer than we expected at the beginning. The BBC's Marta Shokolo in Kiev. Well, let's get a final thought from Professor Michael Clark. Uh, Michael, Mark, Marta talks about this being a long haul. How much is the UK's commitment to helping Ukraine win going to shape the job for whoever becomes Prime Minister? Yes. I mean, I don't think the Ukraine war will be a big determinant of who becomes Prime Minister, but whoever it is will find that their agenda, I think, is increasingly dominated by it. And the reason I say that is not just because the war is going on, but because the war has shown a return to industrial warfare in Europe. This war will be won by the side that proves it has the capability and the willingness to mobilise the resources necessary to fight it. And on the one hand, there is Russia, which has not mobilized so many of its resources at the moment. And on the other hand is Ukraine, who is being supplied by the West. And we haven't mobilized many of our resources to fight it yet. So from here on in, it gets tougher. And we have got to decide, Western society and Britain in particular, taking the lead on this, that we've got to decide, first of all, to keep supplying Ukraine. Secondly, to build up our own stocks to make up for what we've given to Ukraine. And thirdly, to increase our sustainability, because we now know that our, if we were fighting this war, we'd have run out of ammunition in three days. We've got to address that. And that will be a big, big challenge. That and all the related challenges of gearing up for in the return of industrial warfare to Europe. Professor Michael Clark, thank you. That is all for now. And my thanks to all of our guests. We're back with another BFBS SITREP next Thursday. Until then, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP. And you can catch up with past programmes on the website, bfbs.com slash SITREP. There you can also find links to subscribe to the podcast. But for now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.